Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Garrett Breeze. Garrett is a composer, arranger, and orchestrator whose credits include film, television, video games, Broadway stars, major classical artists, and many of the top school music programs in the U.S. Garrett holds a bachelor's degree in music media, in media music from Brigham Young University and a master's degree in commercial composition and arranging from Belmont University. He is the author of Teaching Arranging in the Choral Classroom, and host of the podcast, Selling Sheet Music. Garrett Breeze, welcome to Movable Dough. Thanks for having me. So Garrett, I know you currently live in Nashville, but I don't believe that you grew up there. So where did you grow up? Yeah, so I actually grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. Um, so that that's where I got my start musically. Um, I'm really a product of music education. You know, I, I, I wasn't really exposed to it other than piano lessons. Um, until I got into the sixth grade and started doing band. And and then from there, I just sort of got sucked into everything. You know, by the time I graduated, I was a trombone player. You know, by the time I graduated, I was doing choir and orchestra and band, and jazz band. And, you know, and, and I remember my senior year, you know, the guidance counselor was looking at my schedule going, well, I guess there's no reason why you can't have five music classes in your day. Like, you know, you're going to graduate. So I guess go for it. You know, so I, it, um, that's really, you know where I cut my teeth, I suppose. And then um, I started arranging for my alma mater high school in Indianapolis. Um, and and things kind of snowballed from there, you know, because my teacher would have a student teacher who'd go get a job somewhere else, and then they'd need an arranger, and then they'd, you know, go to a different school or somebody else would see it. And it, it just kind of, it was this kind of word of mouth thing that happened that was really cool. Oh, that's very cool. Did, did was your music, uh, was your family musical as well? Were they all doing the same sort of thing as you? No, that's 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 kind of the funny thing. I mean, the, I guess the genes were there. Uh, my mom and my grandma were are both musical, but I didn't come from any you know any sort of uh, professional music background or anything like that. That's cool. So you started arranging for your high school. Was that while you were in high school? Or was that after? Yeah, I mean, so I I started doing it as a high school student just because I'm you know the overachieving type, um, and then and then I kept doing it on the side when I went to college. I went to uh, Brigham Young University for my undergrad, and so I was I was working. Um, actually, my on campus job was with the BYU Young Ambassadors, so I was doing their charts and like assisting oh, with nice. the show band. And then at the same time, I was sort of moonlighting, writing these show choir charts for um, high schools back east. Um, and, and, you know, the original life plan was that I was going to move to LA and be a film composer. And then at, you know, at some point I just kind of went, oh, I kind of want to give this arranging thing a go. Um, I really liked, I really liked the fact that, um, I was working on something different every day, you know, and, and uh -huh. running on my own schedule. And, um, it just, it, it was never something I would have assumed possible starting out, but by the time, you know, by the time I got, uh, through grad school, I had a pretty sizable business going. That's very cool. So what what was it about show choir that sort of drew you in? Well, 
I think it's just the fact that you're combining the visual and musical elements. You know, you've got the choreography, you've got the, you know, the lights and the sound and the production, and there's just all these different pieces that come together. Um, and it's it's really a unique and cool thing. And and unfortunately, it's only really popular or prevalent in certain pockets of the country. Uh-huh. You know, it's 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 really big in the Midwest, a few spots on the East Coast and the South, you know, a little pocket in Southern California. But that's about it, you know, at least in terms of competitive show choir. Sure. Um, but and and I like being able to put my own spin on things, you know, because the, I get asked to do a lot of arrangements of popular music and they want me to be creative with it and do something different and unexpected or, you know, mash it up with this or that. So um, I don't know. I just, I just, I just figured out early on that I didn't really care what I was writing for as long as it was getting sung, you know, or performed. And and yeah. I, I didn't, it didn't matter to me if it was a, you know, trombone quartet or a Beyonce arrangement for a choir or an original, like quote unquote, serious piece of music. You know, I, I enjoy doing all of it. So I know when you're arranging a piece, you've got to get rights from the copyright holder. Did it take you a while to figure out how to, how to, how to navigate that field? You know, how easy is that or how difficult? Well, when I started in show choir, there was already sort of a, um, how should we put this ongoing debate and discussion about that just within the industry you know mm-hmm. there a lot of the publishers were a lot of the publishers had basically uh discovered youtube and realized that everybody was singing their music and so they had they had started coming in and saying like this is what you need to do so um i guess i was fortunate in that sense that that i i i, I was told that i needed to get licensing you know i didn't have to figure it out myself um the hardest part about it though is really just getting you know, rights holders to answer their email, <laughs> you know, because because if you're if you're a you know, if you're a big if you're a big publisher for a major artist, uh, you you know, you don't have any idea what show choir is. And and, you know, the two hundred dollar license fee is not really worth the time for you to, you know, answer the email. <laughs> all, and, and that and that's that's the frustrating part. You know, more often than not, people are fine with it if you can ever get a hold of them. Uh-huh. It's just it's just that process of explaining like this is what it is. And um, you know, it's for high school kids and blah, blah, blah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of fit into the, you know, neat categories of sync licensing or mechanical licensing. You know, it's kind of its own thing because uh-huh. it's educational, but it's also, um, being professionally arranged. It's kind of this weird in between, but, but for the most part, I think, you know, publishers just want money. So they're all for it. Yeah. So when, when you and I were talking earlier this year at the ACDA convention, uh, you talked about how your work with show choirs is akin to writing like a marching band show. So you're like crafting whole shows for choirs. How many of these do you do per year? Yeah, I mean, I, I that's kind of my go-to for explaining it to people that have never uh, experienced it before. It's, it's kind of like DCI for choir kids. You know, <laughs> you 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 put together a 15, 15 to 20 minute set of music. Um, and a lot of times it's themed or it has a story behind it. Or sometimes it's just... Uh, picking good music but um yeah i probably have about 20 or so shows that i do every year um just for my sort of core group of clients and then i'll do one-off charts for a bunch of different groups that that you know that's all over the place in terms of uh year to year what comes my way um and a lot of that has to do frankly with just um 
you know, the teacher, the teacher carousel and, and every year people are switching jobs and moving here and there and bringing their team with them. And so, um, it's, but it's, it's a really, it's a really great community to be a part of. I mean, the show, the show choir community, um, it's a really tight knit group and it's really supportive and it's really just a a good environment to be part of. So if you're on the fence about show choir, if you're listening, you should definitely do it. So you mentioned uh, that there are sort of these pockets of competitive show choir. Are are your clients from one pocket more than the other? Um, I, yes, um, I would say primarily um, the Indianapolis area, you know, Indiana, Ohio, that sort of area where I grew up. That's where I have the most personal connections just from, okay. um, you know, people I went to school with or friends of friends or that sort of thing. But um Really, it's more about the relationships with the choreographers. Um, I've kind of found the choreographers that I work the best with, and I tend to just sort of, you know, hang on to their coattails as they go from school <laughs> to school and just, you know, work for whoever they're working with, um, because that really helps with the creative process. I mean, you can't do something like this, just like if you were scoring a film, you couldn't do it without talking to the director you know you can't you can't write something for dance if you're not going to be communicating and have a good relationship with the choreographer because there's just yeah. different things you have to consider that you wouldn't normally have to think about like what well for example um how i mean just just sort of the logistics of like how hard are they dancing you know if they're going to be moving on every every eight count and then they have this like complicated syncopated rhythm you know or or maybe it's a devise you know there's certain spots where devise wouldn't work because uh they're doing a spin move or something you know what i mean and so you wouldn't uh-huh. want them to be you wouldn't want the sopranos to be holding out a high f and then twirling you know just it would do, it'd do weird things to the sound or if they're if they're transitioning from this picture to this picture and half the choirs is facing sideways because they're walking you know so i mean it's, I guess it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing because I, I write the music first. So if they choreograph to the music, then then it fits. But there's a lot of of back and forth and just talking about what we want to do. And you yeah. know, this is gonna be this is gonna be a big dance moment. So keep it simple here, or this is gonna be just sort of a stand and sing moment, so it can be really hard or really impressive. And um it's that's all, yeah. I'm, I'm probably I'm probably overthinking it, but um, <laughs> no, I, I think it's great. It's a world that I, I don't usually live in. So I, I, I think that's awesome. Uh, so what eventually landed you in Nashville? Um, so I came for uh, the master's program at Belmont. That was, that was stuck the, around afterwards. Yeah, we just I mean, we just never bothered leaving. You know, that's kind of the <laughs> uh, I mean, if you're not in education, you're you're the only way to make a living as a musician is is to be a freelancer. And that's what I've been my whole career. And one of the, I guess it's the blessing and the curse of being a freelancer is you don't have a employer or a boss telling you where you have to live. And so you can, I mean, we could throw a dart at the map and move tomorrow and I'd still have my same stable of clients. So, um, but we just found we really liked the area. Um, and, you know, we enjoyed the people that we, um, we live with and our friends and our just community. And we, we just, we've just, um, my wife and I just, we really enjoyed starting our family here. All right. Well, I've got to address the elephant in the podcast uh, that we are both podcasters. So you host <laughs> you host the show Selling Sheet Music, and it's aimed right. mostly, though not entirely, at self-published composers. Uh, you're coming up on a year of doing the show. So tell us about the podcast. What's your aim? Yeah. So I just see... Um, 
a lot of things changing in the world of music publishing that I did not feel like we're being talked about. Um, I mean, you you certain you certainly have programs like Arrange Me and My Score that a lot of composers are probably familiar with. You know, those are self-publishing platforms that um, Hal Leonard and J.W. Pepper have that let you upload your music and sell it. Um, you know, to anyone and anyone anyone in the world. Um, but I just think you know. Um, well, put it this way, I, I think it's very comparable to what's happened with streaming recorded music and Spotify. You know, anyone and their mom can go in their bedroom with their laptop and record an album and use DistroKid or CD Baby or some other service like that and get it on streamers and become an independent recording artist. Doesn't take a lot of expense. Um, you know, like the 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 tools to do that are readily available. And the same thing is happening in the world of, of sheet music. You know, if you, if you are familiar with notation software, you can create the scores and engrave the scores and you can uh, print them as PDFs and you can put them on your website. You can put them on um, a, a service like MyScore or ArrangeMe and you can get your music out in front of the world. You can put videos on YouTube. You know, you can, you can become a, a publisher um, all on your own. And so I think that aspect of just where the technology has gone combined with um, just how easy it is, you know, to download and print a PDF. I mean, it's changing how people are buying music. Yeah. Yeah. I've listened to a, a couple of your episodes. Great, great tools and, and tips for self-published composers, which I think is fantastic. Where do you see it going in the future? You know, I I only see it growing. I I, I think, I mean, there's certainly pros and cons uh, to working with traditional publishers. I don't think traditional publishers are going away, but I do think that um, um, those traditional publishers, I think, are going to be more and more focused on specific markets. You know, mm -hmm. how Leonard has their educational series, like that's never going to go away because that's a well-established brand. It's an amazing product. You know, they they have that they have that system dialed in, right? But yeah. there's other types of music. I think there's well, for one thing, I think there's an interest in singing different styles of music. You know, there's interest in and in having more representation in music. I think this is one of the ways um, you know, we balance balance out um the need to hear different voices in music composition. You know, any any race or sexual orientation or gender can upload their music and and be found online just as any composer you know the 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 need for the um you know the need for the gatekeepers to sort of determine that i think is becoming less and less so i guess what i see happening is um more and more people kind of finding their niche mm -hmm. both at, both as composers and as conductors you know i think uh a lot of choirs tend to sing you know, certain styles of music. And I think they'll find, you know, where to go to, to get that. And that might be a combination of, you know, this independent composer over here and this publisher here, and, you know, people just have their go-tos. Yeah. And so I do, I, I think, I think the overall market is going to increase because you're going to have more music out there, but I also think um, you're not going to have the like mega stars in the same way that you had, you know, 20 years ago with Eric Whitaker and every everyone in the world was singing his pieces. I mean, you might still have that, but I think if you look at what's happened with recorded music, you know, it's sort of fragmented 
you have you have smaller groups of really devoted listeners that are really fans of a particular artist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to turn to talk about your ebook, uh, Teaching Arranging in the Choral Classroom. So you make this available for free on your website. Uh, I, right. I read I read through it. I don't want to give everything away because I think our listeners should go check it out and download it themselves. But I would like to touch on just the first lesson in the book, uh, the one thing that all music has in common. So what is that one thing and how does that help choral conductors teach arranging? Well, I uh, well, the one thing is the fact that it's arranged. You know, uh, I, I guess the other elephant in the room is that this is a podcast for about composers and I'm primarily an arranger. But the way I look at it, um, arranging is just a step in the composition process. Either you have, cre- you know, if you're a composer, you are creating the melodic material yourself and then going on to arrange it. Whereas if you're being hired to do an arrangement of something, you know, the 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 source material is already there for you to, to draw from. But um, in terms of, creating an arrangement yourself, there's really two ways of doing it. Um, there's sort of the, uh, what I call the transcriptive arranging, which is when you're trying to keep things as close to the original material as possible, right? So if you wanted if you wanted to sing something from Hamilton, right? But you have a choir instead of a, a singer, a single soloist. So really you're not changing much about the piece other than to add those harmonies. And, and maybe you got to change the key to fit it for your singer's voices or something like that. But, but generally generally speaking you're keeping things sort of the same um and and then i would just i contrast that with what i call transformative arranging which is that's sort of the postmodern jukebox right you take a song and and put it in a completely new context you know you take a pop song and you make it a swing tune or you take something with accompaniment and you make it a cappella you know and you, and you and you're being really creative with how you um put that together and put putting your spin on it and and you're really making a, a new piece of music out of it yeah i think that's great i think it's great i've i've done several things like that with my own choirs and i think any choral conductor should should do it and i guess i guess i'll just say too one of the um one of the main points that i wanted to get across with writing that uh course is is the fact that you don't need to have, you know, a, a complete grasp on music theory or music notation to be able to do it. Like we we tend to think of arranging as the written piece of music. And, and that's certainly how I do things. That's how my brain works. But um, I don't want to discount other ways of creating music. You know, there's a lot of, especially in Nashville, you know, there's a lot of really talented musicians that just go into the studio and and make stuff up on the spot and record it. You know, a lot of times I get asked to transcribe after recording sessions, like, here's what we just did. Can you write it down? Like, can you figure out what we just did? Um, <laughs> you know, so you may have, you know, and, and, and my pilot group for this course was actually a, a middle school choir, you know, so you don't have to my point is you don't have to wait until you get to college to start teaching arranging, because if you do that, you're missing a huge segment of the student population that would probably be interested in it. Well, awesome. Well, I'm starting a new high school position this fall and excited to see what I can do with them. Me too. I'd I'd love to hear it. (laughs) So uh, thinking back, what is one of the most memorable performances of one of your pieces? Something that you look back on with fondness? memorable performance well you know the sad part is i don't usually get to go to these <laughs> so, i mean i mean truthfully uh, most of the time i'm just sending off the pdf you know and then yeah. um 
And then, um, you know, if I'm lucky, I get to see a recording of it later. But I do have to, I, I, I will be sentimental here for a little bit and just say that, you know, um, when my sister was uh, a senior in high school, we did a whole Christmas album uh, for her choir. Uh, me and the director, we wrote a, an album of Christmas music and recorded it. And so it was really fun to be able to go in the studio with her and with the choir. You know, if you ever get the chance to take your choir into a recording studio, it's a really, it's a really neat um, educational opportunity. But that was just really fun to have that personal connection, you know, with her and with the other, with, you know, with, with the program that I had uh, been a part of. That's awesome. So Garrett, I know you, you, you're a freelance composer, arranger. What do you do to relax when you're not doing music? What do you do after a stressful day? Well, right now it's Tears of the Kingdom, uh, the new <laughs> Zelda game. I mean, there's not much relaxing, to be truthful. Uh, I've got three kids under the age of eight, you know, so uh, I enjoy playing with them and doing things with them, but I don't know that I would call it relaxing. <laughs> kids have their their own level of relaxation. <laughs> For sure. No, but uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, you're... You're asking a very reasonable question. I gave you a, a sort of flippant answer, but yeah, no, I, 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 um, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy playing video games. I enjoy um, being outdoors, you know, going kayaking, disc golf, that sort of thing. Um, you know, spending time with my family, um, watching TV, you know, just vegging. It's funny. Um, I don't listen to a lot of music for fun. Because um, by the time I, you know, reach the end of the day, my brain is so overstimulated. It's like the last thing I want to do is hear more music. So um, a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll listen to podcasts or I'll do something specifically because it's not musical and my brain just needs a break. It sounds very similar to what I just told my students the other day. They asked me the same thing. What kind of music do you listen to? Uh, I don't listen to a lot. <laughs> I just need a break sometimes. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of breaks, after we take a quick break, we're going to listen to some of Garrett's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson, and I'm talking today with Garrett Breeze. So we're going to start today with There's a Green Hill Far Away for SATB Piano or Strings. Uh, this is a beautiful setting of one of my favorite hymns, but set in 5-4 instead of the normal 4-4. So tell us about writing this arrangement and why you chose to use 5-4. Yeah, so it started out um, as a as a request from the BYU Young Ambassadors, they wanted a, a new piece to sing on their fireside program. Uh, you know, they're, they're a, a show Broadway type group and they go on tour and, you know, uh, on Sundays and at other times throughout the tour, they'll go to local churches and sing a program. And so they wanted some new music for that. And, and I had always really loved the text to that hymn, but I, as I started arranging it, it just, it just felt very square, you know the the way the the way that the the melody was structured was very you know on the beat da 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 and it just it just kept sounding too I don't know uh, you know militaristic or march like or I don't know mm -hmm. there was just something about it that that I was struggling with and I I remember this was just this was one of those lightning bolt moments you know I was just I was just walking on campus one day and then I realized like huh like. What if we what if we change the time signature and that just gives it a little more room to breathe you can kind of stretch and it has this sort of push and pull that it adds to all you know to every phrase that really um I think makes you think about the words differently and and express 
you know, the, the melodic line a little differently than I think you would um, just in the regular strict four, four meter. Um, so yeah, I'm really proud of it. I mean, it was really, it really turned out great. And then this past year, um, I just decided I wanted to have orchestra with it. So I had a, I had a professional choir coming into the studio to, to record, um, a Christmas EP actually, that'll be coming out, um, this year. And so I just threw this on the session because I wanted to. <laughs> well, I think that, I think it's great. Um, and the thing that I love about it is, you know, it doesn't feel off kilter because it's five, four, you know, you're expecting four, four from there's a green hill far away. But like you said, it, it feels like it's breathing more. It it just me, it, feels more relaxed almost. Well, to me, it feels more like an uneven two. You know, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think, I don't think when you're conducting it, it, I don't know that it makes sense necessarily to, you know, to be constantly uh, beating out the quarter note, but uh, it just, it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, my, my middle school band director always talked about those, those uh, top uh, taffy machines, you know, yeah. that like they have the two arms and they sort of uh, pull and stretch the toffee, you know, it's kind of like that. Just like the arms are constantly spinning. It never really, it never really settles in one place because it's always going to the next thing or coming back from it. And, and I think something else that helps with too, is just, I think sometimes hymn arrangements can get stuck in this rut of like, this is what we're doing for the first verse. And this is what we're doing for the second verse. And you know what I mean? And, um, you know, it can be very strophic and, and, and I guess I do that too in the arrangement because each, each verse is set, uh, pretty differently from, from the rest. But I think, um, it just feels more connected because you never really stop and rest anywhere. And so I think it helps, it helps sort of counteract that sort of, um, um, I guess like relentless structure that you sometimes, uh, get when you arrange hymns and it's, you have one melody and it's repeated four times and that's basically it, you know? <laughs> All right. Well, we are now going to listen to There's a Green Hill Far Away. Amen. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Our next piece today, The Place Where Lost Things Go. This is an arrangement from Mary Poppins Returns for SATB, Piano and Violin. So when you sit down to work on an arrangement like this, what sort of choices are you considering in your process? Well, and for me, it's all about um, the structure of the piece. It, it, and it's figuring about, it's it's more more so than that, it's, it's figuring out where the sort of money moments are. You know, wh- what are the mm-hmm. spots that, what are the spots that are the most important? You know, what are we building towards? And so for something like this, um, that really just meant digging into the text and figuring out which lines were the most meaningful. Um, and I, I, I try really hard and I, um, I think I succeeded in this piece. Uh, I try really hard to make sure that the kinds of vocal flourishes and effects and, and, and things like that make sense with what the text is saying. I mean, not necessarily word painting, but just sort of, I don't know, emotional painting, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, and so, and, and, and I get asked to do a lot of pieces like this where, um, a choir wants to sing a popular song, but they want it to feel like a quote unquote legit piece of choral music. Right. And right. so it's also figuring out like, what is it from this song that really, really works for choir. And so for me, uh, for the place where last things go, a lot of that came down to just the feel and the piano accompaniment and figuring out how to set that piano part and then adding the violin. And then, uh, and then from there that kind of set the mood. And, and, and so you, you kind of take that, you kind of take the vibe that the accompaniment sets up and you look at the text. And then from there, you're sort of piecing together. I mean, I, I don't want, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I am not one of those composers that sits down and has everything mapped out and structured before they start writing. I'm very much, I mean, I need to do, I need to do a really bad draft first and then step away for a couple of days <laughs> and then come back and kind of tweak it and then go sleep on it and come back and rework it. I mean, it, I, I, I wish, I wish I could say that I was, but I'm just not one of those guys where I see it and it just sort of comes out fully formed. It's very much a process of trial and error and, um, and, and even in this case, you know, this, this was a commission for Andrew Crane at BYU. And uh, my first draft was pretty safe, to be honest, because I'd never worked with him before. Uh-huh. And he basically came back and said, you know, this is the right idea, but you've got a professional grade choir here, like, uh, go for it, you know? <laughs> and so then, and, you know, because I, 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 I didn't want to overdo it with the DVC and, and that sort of thing, you know, um, I didn't want to make it too show choir, right? Um so um, where was I going with this? Yeah, so I guess, but it, but, it, but it was also a process of figuring out like what Andrew wanted and what was right for the choir. And we went back probably, we went back and forth probably seven or eight times. I mean, I, I know there are composers that don't do that, but I think, you know, if somebody's paying you for a piece of music, they should get um, what they're after, you know? And so, yeah. uh, so Dr. Crane's, um, you know, his influence is all over this as well because he would come back and with you know really specific. I think I think when you're working with the composer, you know, it, I guarantee they have thought of every possible way to write what they've written. And so if you have a suggestion or a feedback or something what you want changed, um, I think it's beneficial for everyone to be as specific as you can. You know, he he didn't come back and say I don't like this. Try again. It was very specific. Like let's have the basses do this, or what do you think about the piano part voicing it this way? You know, it was it was very specific to like this chord or this line or this part. Oh, that's cool. 
That's a, a good collaboration. All right. Well, we are going to listen to The Place Where Lost Things Go, here performed by the BYU Singers with Dr. Andrew Crane, conductor. Thank you. 
All right, our third piece today, Sing Loud for SAB Choir and Piano. So this piece falls into your catalog of show choir music, a world, as I've admitted, I'm pretty ignorant of. So we've talked about your choices in the last piece, but are there other things you have to take into account when working for show choir? I know you talked about choreography. Are you are you picturing the choir singing it in your mind as you write? Definitely. I think... Um... I mean, I'm not very good at predicting what a choreographer is going to do, but what I try to do is give them rhythms that will be helpful. So accompaniment patterns or maybe hits in the accompaniment or natural um, like breaks in the line. Just I, I try to give them I try to give them something to choreograph to, if that makes sense. Uh huh. This was a commission for a middle school in Iowa. And so they wanted something that they could bring their seventh and their eighth grade choirs together and do sort of the, you know, the final number on the concert. So okay. uh, I don't know that they actually performed it with choreography, but but what they were asking for was something in that sort of, you know, pink zebra uh, danceable, you know, sure. like they have a lot of kids in their show choir program. So it sort of straddles the line, right? Like you could stand and sing it and, and it would be just sort of a fun, light, uh, you know, pop moment, but you could also definitely put choreography to it. Um, I think the thing about that too, one of the things that makes show choir arranging different is just um, the attention span for repetition is not necessarily there. Like a lot of those arrangements tend to be shorter and 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 you almost never repeat something verbatim mm. um, because when you're doing it in the context of like a 15 minute show, I don't know, it just hits different with an audience, you know, whereas if you compare it to a concert where you're going to sing a piece and then talk about the piece and then reset and then sing another piece. You know what I mean? It, it, you sort of take in everything as a whole. And so when you're, when you're writing a show choir um, show, one of the things you have to think about is kind of what, you know, the song that came before and the song that came after and, and how does everything fit together and flow and connect as a whole. Um, so having said that, this, this piece was not part of a, of a larger show, but um, I try to never repeat anything exactly the same. So yes, the piano part may be the same from verse to verse, but if you look at the vocal parts, you know, they're doing something different when that second verse comes around or when the chorus comes around, you know, then the, there's that second chorus has more stuff in the instrumentation and, and just trying to trying to put as much variety into it as you can. Yeah. Now I know this arrangement that we're about to hear does not just have piano. It's got guitar, drums, bass, et cetera. So do you do the orchestration for those as well? Yes, I do. And actually this was, this one is not an arrangement. It's just an original song. Oh, um, awesome. So, so, uh, you know, I, uh, composition, I think, and songwriting have a lot in common, but they have a different vocabulary for everything, you know, whereas a composer might call something a B a songwriter would call it, you know, verse chorus. And so there's definitely sort of tools from both worlds that I, I draw from when I'm when I'm um, creating a, a new piece. But yeah, so the accompaniment, um, you know, I, I started with the piano. And then from there, the next thing I did was the the drum part just to figure out what that basic groove is. And mm -hmm. then, you know, the bass and the guitar, like, when when you're having that recorded, you don't really need to put much thought into it because you can hand the guys the you can hand the guys the chord chart and they right. and they do the work for you. But um, in that sense, it's more like producing, right? Um, and that's I think what's so fun about what I do is 
is I, I wear sorts of, I wear all sorts of different hats. You know, there's some days where I'm composing stuff from scratch. There's some days where I'm writing song lyrics and creating new music that way. There's some days I'm more of a producer, you know, and, and, and sometimes you have to kind of do everything at once. That's awesome. Okay. Well, we are going to listen to Sing Loud. piece today 
an arrangement of Still, 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 which I'll tell you is one of my wife's favorite Christmas songs. Uh, this is for SAT Acapella Choir. So I know you have a large holiday music collection. What should people know about this arrangement in particular? Well, this was one I actually this was uh, one I wrote for that album I mentioned before, the album that my my sister sang on. Um, this uh, recording is not them. This recording is a, a professional choir, but um, they wanted something. I think the perception out there is that holiday music is kind of something you throw together at the last minute. You know, like it's it's not what you really want to do as a choral director, but it's something that you're expected to do. Right. Because 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 the moms want to hear Christmas music. Right. Um, and so what we were trying to do with this was just create something that was a really serious piece of music, you know, like and and just show that you can you can have a holiday concert where you are stretching your choir and exercising all of those you know advanced musical muscles. It's, it doesn't have to be something that's just sort of uh, thrown together at the last minute. Right. Um, and that goes back to the self-publishing thing, too, that we were talking about before, like a lot of the time the holiday music that's published does fall into that sort of, I call it the just add water category of music, right? Because that's what the majority of people are after. And, you know, a, a, a difficult eight part acapella arrangement, which is what still, still, still is, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily sell as many copies as the, the three part, you know, simple repetitive thing, <laughs> nothing wrong with that type of music at all. But I think, um, you know, like the fact that anyone can publish their music now creates more opportunities for this kind of thing. And so what I tend to go for with my holiday music is, you know, uh, choirs that are looking for something a little more, a little, a little added challenge, um, you know, not just sort of your basic, um, I don't know, because there's been so, I guess, I guess what I'm really trying to say is there's, there's already so many versions of still, still, still out there, right? There's already so many versions of every holiday piece. And so for me, when I arrange something like that when i arrange a still 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 or a jingle bells or a silent night like there has to be a compelling enough reason musically for me to do it like why mm -hmm. why should they sing my piece versus the 40 others that are out there or the 100 others or i'm sure in the case of silent night you know thousands of arrangements out right. there and so for me it was figuring out like what is that twist that i can put on it and for me it was just the way um the piece just sort of unfolds and then develops into these sort of crunchier chords and then pulls back and then it builds into this, you know, big moment. And um, like, I just felt like I had something to say with this one that made it worth doing, you know, and made it worth performing. Yeah. Well, it's a great arrangement. And uh, I think our audience is in for a treat. So we're going to listen here to Still, Still, Still.
that you can tell us about what sort of current projects do you have well we are right in the thick of show choir season uh the summer is actually my busiest time as a as an arranger because um everyone wants their music to be ready and waiting for them when they come back to school in august uh -huh. and september so working on a lot of show choir i do have a couple of original songs uh that are written for show choirs or with show choirs in mind that'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks um, and then I have a Christmas EP um, that's coming out to Apple, Spotify uh, streamers here in the next couple of weeks. So, so check that out. And if you go to, um, so breezetunes.com is sort of my show choir centric website. Okay. But then um, I also have holidaychoirmusic.com, which is just focused in on the, the holiday stuff. And then garrettbreeze.com is where where you find everything else, I guess. So uh, <laughs> I know it's a little, I know it's a little bit uh, unusual to have three websites, but, but um, I think for me, it just, it, it made sense logistically to have them in separate places. So um, if you can, if you can remember any one of those addresses, uh, there should be links to the others. So don't, <laughs> don't stress out about that, but yeah, um, definitely check out my music and check out those recordings when they come out. And also the podcast selling sheet music. If you're a composer or an arranger, and you're trying to figure out how to, to do what I'm doing, how to get your music out there. Um, even if you're somebody that's, you know, got a traditional publisher, we share lots of ideas on how to market your music and interview people in the industry. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really um, sort of niche thing, but I, I find it really interesting. Well, I, I agree. I think everyone should go check out the podcast. I've, like I said, I've listened to a couple episodes and I think it's really well done. And hey, listeners out there, as we are nearing the end of season six of Movable Dough, you may have noticed the awesome new logo that I'm using this season. 
Uh, the logo looks great on a shirt, a mug, a sticker, a hoodie, or any number of other items. The design is available through Tee Public, and you can get there through my website, sdcompose.com slash movable dough, and click where it says merch. Let others know how much you enjoy the show. Well, Garrett, thank you so much for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you, Steve. This was a treat. Good to talk to you again. You as well. My guest today was composer Garrett Breeze. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>